And that was one minute right there, 60 seconds. That's how long I made you wait. Some of you are instantly uncomfortable, weren't you? Like three seconds in, it's like, uh, I got to say something. I got to do something. Um, isn't it amazing how waiting, when we have to wait for anything, it makes it feel like time just slows down and gets drug out. Even if we're just waiting for something simple like a pot of water to boil or something like that so we can cook our dinner. I mean, it just, it feels like whenever we have to wait, time just, just goes longer and longer and longer. And then the opposite is true as well, isn't it? If, if we feel like we're engaged in the moment that we're in or we're enjoying the moment we're in, time flies when you're having fun, right? You don't even notice the passage of time. You don't even notice that time has passed. It feels like it just goes by like that because you're enjoying whatever it was that you were waiting for. Um, for us, we're in a season, as Brad just talked about, uh, day 28, in fact, of praying and fasting. And so 40 days of prayer and fasting is what we're in the midst of. And part of praying and fasting is waiting. Part of seeking God is waiting. So what we're doing is we're bringing before God the needs, some of the needs that we have here in our church, and also some of the needs that we have in our own individual lives. And we're seeking God together and just asking him to reveal himself, asking him to provide, asking him to speak. And so it's a season of waiting. And so today we're starting a new series um, talking about the Christmas story, talking about the season that we find ourselves in of Advent, uh, centered around the story of Jesus' birth and coming into this world. And we're asking the question, what does it mean to wait? What does it mean to wait well? What, and what are we supposed to be doing exactly while we're waiting? We live in a, in a culture and a time that's all about hurry. It's all about rush. And there is no dead space. There is no silence. We don't know what to do with that. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to jump in this morning to Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And Luke chapter 1 begins by introducing us to a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what we're told about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that Zechariah is a priest in uh, this time and that Elizabeth, his wife, is actually from a family of priests. And so priesting is in their blood. It's part of their, their family. It's part of who they are. And um, the text tells us a couple of uh, things, a couple of details about Zechariah and Elizabeth. First, it tells us that Elizabeth is a close relative of Mary, who is soon to become the mother of Jesus. The other, the other details the text tells us is, first of all, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous people. They've honored God with their lives. They've been faithful to him. They have not turned away from him. They, they are righteous people who have been faithful to God. The second detail we're told about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they are childless. They have no children, and they've been waiting for a baby. They've been seeking God. They've been, that's what they've wanted. That's been their heart's desire. I don't think it's a mistake that Luke tells us those two details back to back, that they're righteous people and that they don't have a child, what they've been waiting for, what they've been asking for. In this time, in this culture, what you need to understand is that if someone was childless, the immediate question that would have been in your friends and family's mind is, what did you do? Or, or more specifically, what did you do wrong? There, there must be some reason that you don't have a child. There, there must be some kind of judgment that's on your life. You must not have done something that you should have been doing if you don't have a child. That was the way they thought. And, and so that's why Luke is so insistent. No, they've been righteous. They haven't turned back from God. They haven't gotten angry in their time of waiting and just said, well, if, God, if God's so good, why hasn't he done this for me? I'm just, I'm bailing, I'm leaving, I'm walking away from my relationship with God. They haven't done that whole thing. They've remained faithful. And now they are past the point of childbearing years. The door is closing. 
on any sort of way they could naturally have children, and yet they're still being faithful to God. If you're, um, if you're taking notes, I would invite you to write down this statement. Waiting actually reveals our relationship with God's authority in our lives. That's what waiting does. Our desire here at Frontline is for every single person to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ where they confess Jesus as Lord of their life and they surrender their life to him. That's what it means to have zero lives unchanged by Jesus. It means we want to be a church and we want to be people who, where we just see every single person experience that hope that comes when we surrender our lives to Jesus and live surrendered to him. But, but here's the catch. Oftentimes, uh, we find out how surrendered we really are to Jesus when we go through a season of waiting. It's not really until we enter a season of waiting where we're actually having to wait for something in our lives and wait for God to reveal himself, wait for him to provide. That's when it, it really reveals our relationship with God's authority, the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that's where Zechariah and Elizabeth find themselves. And so finally, the day comes where their waiting is over. So that's where we're going to jump into the story. Verse 11 says, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary... An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. That's quite an announcement. That's the announcement that's given to Zechariah by the, by the angel. Um, now, this is Zechariah's response. Zechariah said to the angel, how, that's the first question he asked, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. So the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. So, this seems harsh, doesn't it? It, see, it seems intense to us. There's this incredible announcement that is, you know, given to Zechariah in this moment. And when he responds, the angel doesn't like the response. And so, he's struck mute. It's literally like, uh, you're gonna, you, really, you're going to question me? I'm going to make you zip it until the child is born. And he's just struck mute. And that's it. Until the baby's born. So, so the question immediately, I don't know if you're like me, immediately I read something like that and I go, why? What was it about his response that caused that sort of reaction? Because it seems harsh. Why did the angel do that? What's happening here in this passage is actually something we've talked about before here at Frontline. What, what Zechariah does in this moment, when the angel announces that he's going to have a baby and this baby's going to be named John... Uh, and he and his wife are past childbearing years, the very first question out of his mouth is, how? He puts how before yes, is what he does in this moment. We've, we've talked about this. Whenever God comes to us, whenever uh, we're, we're in a season where we're waiting, whenever we're in a season where we're being asked to step out in faith, make sure your yes comes before how. Yes always has to come before how. 
And, and oftentimes when we're in a season of waiting, we get obsessed with the question of how. Just, just like that first minute of this teaching where, you, you know, you're just like almost about to go out of your skin. Like, why isn't somebody saying anything? We get in this, this mode where we just get focused on the question of how. How am I going to be healed if you're waiting for healing or results from a scan? How am I going to pay the bills right now in the midst of this season? How am I going to explain this situation to my boss? Or for us here at Frontline, how is the roof going to get fixed? That's the question we, we can get, I can get obsessed with. How is the sound system going to get upgraded? How, how are we going to see those kinds of things happen? And oftentimes, what God does in our lives is He comes and He calls us to set ourselves apart. And He calls us just to say yes to setting ourselves apart before we ever get the how of how He's going to do it. Yes, saying yes to being set apart by God often comes before any sort of explanation of how. And we see that in this passage. So, so what I want to do is I just want to walk you through. There are three elements in this passage uh, of how John's life was set apart, even before his birth. And, and it was set apart for a holy purpose. Because oftentimes what we feel like when we're in a season of waiting that God has sort of just set us aside. But oftentimes what he's really doing is he's calling us to set ourselves apart and say yes to a holy purpose that we don't yet know the how of how it's going to happen or how it's going to work. So three elements of this story. The first one is the whole idea of no alcohol. Did you catch that in verse 17? It said this baby from the time he's born, he's never to touch wine or alcoholic drinks. In Beer City, USA, that should get your attention, okay? Immediately, that should have been the thing that jumped out to you. He's, he's told to have, he can't have any alcohol, really? What many scholars believe is that this verse is a reference to something in the law of Moses in the Old Testament known as the Nazarite vow. It was a vow that the people uh, could take. It wasn't required, but people could take it. So this is Numbers uh, 6, verse 2. It says this, If any of the people, either men or women, take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way, they must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. It goes on in that passage to say that during the time of their vow, not only should they give up wine and alcoholic drinks, but they should not cut their hair. They should let their hair grow long. In fact, there's a few different characters in the Bible that were set apart from their birth as a Nazarite with, with this Nazarite vow on their life. Some of you know the story of Samson in the Old Testament. He's the one that had the long hair and was the muscle guy, had all the power and the strength. And you know the story, he lost that power and strength when Delilah cut his hair, right? Well, well the reason he loses his power and strength, it's not because his hair was magical like we tell kids, you know, when they learn that story. It's because of the Nazarite vow. His life was set apart as a Nazarite. That's where his power came from was that vow that God had, had blessed his life in a special way. So when he cut his hair, it was the issue was he had broken the vow of the Nazarite. That's what that whole story is actually about. Eli is set apart from birth as a Nazarite as well. And then we see John. We know him as John the Baptist. He's set apart in the same way. Zechariah is asked from the time, even before he's born, for your son to be set aside as a Nazarite. No alcohol, and he doesn't get to cut his hair. Um, several years ago, I think it was the year 2006, it was, um, we had moved into this building, and uh, it was the year that we went through the whole interview process as a church um, to look for the church's next lead pastor. 
And so during that, that season, about six months long, I felt like God was calling me to be a lead pastor, either here at Frontline or somewhere else. I just knew that was the next step for me. And so during that season when interviews were happening and things were very sort of up in the air, where is this church going? What are things, what are going to happen? Um, I, I felt like God called me during that season to take a Nazarite vow and to set myself apart. I'd been studying this passage of scripture. And so in 2006, there was that six month window. I just felt like for this six months, I'm going to set myself apart. I'm, I'm going to take this Nazarite vow. As some of you are saying right now, now Brian, you know, we're in the law, we're in the age of grace. We're not in the age of law. Nobody has to take a Nazarite vow anymore because of Jesus. He can, yes, I know that. I know all of that. I, it wasn't because I felt like I had to or it was on me. I just wanted to. It was something I just felt impressed upon after studying it. I'm going to do this. I'm just going to take this vow, set myself apart, seek God and, for my future and for the future of Frontline. And so for six months, I didn't touch any alcohol and I let my hair grow long. I looked like a homeless guy. I looked terrible. My wife hated it. Uh, we have pictures from that era that she's literally like, just can we just put those away and never see those again? In fact, I, I had long hair and looked terrible and all disheveled for the interview here with our leadership team at Frontline, but I got the job. So <laughs> put that in your pipe and smoke it. I don't know. Um, so all that to say... The point, the point of that, telling that story, it's funny, I, I've actually never shared that publicly before that I did that, I took that vow during that time, but it was a time where, where I can look back on, it was an incredible time where God did set me apart and did some things in my life and did some things here at our church that I, I think had to do with that season. So, so here's the point, how is God calling you to set yourself apart? How is God calling you to set yourself apart for a holy purpose? Maybe you don't know the how yet of what he wants to do in your life. Maybe you're seeking him for a specific area of your life, a specific need or whatever it is, and, and you're just saying, how, God, how, how, how? That's what I'm asking you for. How is God calling you to set yourself apart during this time? How is he calling you to be different, to be weird, to be, to be not like everyone else during this season? Oftentimes what God does is he sets us apart before he ever gives us a how. So what was John being set apart for? What was the holy purpose he was being set aside for as a Nazarite in this passage? It had to do with his calling. Verse 15 tells us that he was to be in the same spirit of Elijah, the prophet, and he was to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. That was the holy purpose he was being set aside for. The second thing um, that we're shown in this story, the second way that John's life was set apart had to do with his name. He had a very unusual name. Now you say, John, really? That was an unusual name? Yes, it was for his family and for his context. It actually was an unusual name. It's not an unusual name in, in our world. But he, the text uh, shows us what we're talking about here. Verse 59 says, when the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. This is what you would do in Jewish culture at this time. In eight, eight days, if you had a male child, you would invite all the family and all the friends and you would come together for a circumcision ceremony. Yay, we're going to get to watch him get circumcised. <laughs> Seems awkward to me, but this is what they would do. So they all gather together. So imagine this, it's all Zechariah and Elizabeth's family. And, and remember, they all are priests. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth comes from a family of priests. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? They exclaimed. There is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him, because remember, he's mute. 
He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. Awe fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. So again, we see the sense that John's life is set apart in a special way for God and for what God wants to do. And so what's happening in, in this moment is in the, in the culture of the Israelites, the name of a child was very significant. In fact, all through the scriptures, you see God changes the name of people when he puts a calling on their life. Abram became Abraham, Sarai became Sarah, Jacob became Israel. But in the case of both John the Baptist and Jesus, their name is sort of given by an angel even before they're born. Their lives are set apart for this holy calling even before they're born. Now, in this culture, if you were a priest and if you came from a family of priests, then the expectation would be that when you have your firstborn male child especially, that child's going to be a priest. And this was a very honored thing in this culture. And so as the family all gather around, they're expecting John to be named Zach Jr. after his father because he's going to follow in the footsteps of his father. So to name a baby something other than a family name, either to name him something other than his father's name or some other kind of family name, would have basically been to send the message to your family and friends, he's not going to be like us. This child, he's not going to be a priest. He's not going to grow up and walk in the, in the same footsteps of his father. He's been set apart for a different purpose. From the moment of his birth, everybody in his family knew this, this kid is going to be different. There's something that's going to be different about this child. Zacharias, as a descendant of Aaron, the priest, and part of the religious system, he identified with it. He was part of the sacrificial system. He was part of the temple. He was part of, of the understanding of the law and everything that was set up for that. John grows up inside the system with a father who's a priest, and he stands outside of the system, and he speaks to the system about what the system points to. That was his special calling. That was his role. John was the one who was able to look at the religious system, and he understood that the temple itself pointed to Jesus, that the law of Moses, everything in it pointed to Jesus, that the sacrificial system itself all pointed to and found its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. John could see that because he'd been set apart. He wasn't part of it. He stood apart from it. God had set him apart from birth, and he was able to see what it was. And the point, of, I mean, the reason we're all sitting in this room today, the reason we're not offering sacrifices up here on this stage is because it all pointed to Jesus and found its fulfillment in him. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we enter into this holy salvation that God had been putting into place from the foundation of time for what he wants to do in humanity. John could see that and he testified to it. He pointed toward it. That was his role. That's what he was called to do. Oftentimes, when we think God is setting us aside or we're just being shelved over here because we're in a season of waiting and we're asking God and we're begging him to move in our lives, oftentimes what he's really doing is he's setting us apart. He's calling us to say yes to being set apart even before we understand the how of what he wants to do in our lives. 
How is God calling you to be set apart? How is he calling you to live a set apart life? So there's three elements. There was the no alcohol piece, the Nazarite vow, the unusual name of John. The third part of the story that is a a very set apart part of John's uh, story is his voice. This whole idea of his voice. There's great irony in this passage. Luke is really wanting us to see in that Zechariah loses his voice. Zechariah can't speak because of his response to the angel, but John is called to be a voice in the wilderness. That's the, pro- that's the prophecy in Isaiah 40. He's going to be a voice in the wilderness, uh, preparing the way for the Lord, calling people to, to point toward Jesus. And, and the great irony that Zechariah has no voice, and, and that's exactly what John is called to be, is a voice. It all came down to how Zechariah chose to use his voice and how John chose to use his voice. Zechariah decided to use his voice to ask the question of how. Immediately, that's the first thing out of his mouth. How? How is this going to happen? And instead of just celebrating the news that he was going to have a son. And so he loses his voice. I wonder if there are times in our lives where God literally asks us to just say yes, to just use our voice to say yes, and then trust him that he's going to show us the how. Um, this is uh, my son Alan's guitar. Alan is our oldest uh, child. Every one of the guitars in our house, we own several, has some kind of a story I've discovered. I don't know why that is. Um, but this is my son Alan. My, my son is a right-handed person, and this is his left-handed guitar. And um, when Alan was born, we were surprised to discover in the delivery room that he had a pretty significant deformity of his left hand. We, that didn't show up on any of the, the ultrasounds or anything. We didn't know that was coming. Um, but it's the, the technical term for it is syndactyly is what it's called. But basically, he has a, a pinky finger. Even though the bones are misshapen, it's there. And then he has a thumb. Um, and, uh, but he has no real bones or structure for these three fingers right here. So he doesn't have fingers there. And so he actually had to have a, have a surgery when he was very little just to even give him the ability to have opposing fingers at all between that pinky and that thumb. And the hand is smaller than, you know, his right hand is. So when, when he was born, we knew, okay, he's going to have a little bit of different experience, a different life. There are going to be things that he's going to have to figure out his own way of, of doing things. When Alan was 10, he was about to turn 10, I asked him, I said, hey, buddy, what do you want for your birthday? And he said, dad, what I really want for my birthday is I want you to buy me a guitar and I want you to teach me how to play it. And I immediately, as soon as he said that, I want a guitar, I want you to teach me how to play it, the first question that went through my head was, how? How are you going to do that? As a right-handed person, the way you play a guitar, I'm right-handed, the way you play a guitar is this thing's flipped over the other way, and you use your left hand to make the chords, use your right hand to strum or pick or whatever, and as a right-handed person as he is, he didn't have the fingers, the necessary fingers to actually make the chords on the guitar. And so immediately, I, I went into this sort of like distraction mode. Basically, what I, try, I decided to do is I decided I was going to protect him instead of believe in him. And so what I did is I, is I just said, hey, buddy, how about, uh, how about a Ferrari instead? <laughs> I mean, anything. I'll get you whatever you want. You make it up, I'll get it for you. Uh, and so that, that was sort of my response, the way I, I handled that situation. But he just kept being persistent. No, Dad, I want you to buy me a guitar and teach me how to play it. And so as, as we began to talk about that, my wife Carrie and Alan and myself, 
uh, we realized the only way this would be possible is for you as a right-handed person to have a left-handed guitar and to be able to, to make the chords. But here's the thing. It's hard enough to learn how to play an instrument with your dominant hand, the, the way that you're naturally inclined to, to uh, double it when you've got to actually learn how to play an instrument with your, you know, offhand somehow. I mean, that's, that's incredibly difficult to learn how to do. In fact, I don't really know anybody who's right-handed that plays a left-handed guitar or left-handed that plays a right-handed guitar. I don't know anybody that does that. And so I hemmed and hawed, and finally my wife just said, will you just go buy him the guitar? She said, if, if, he, if he gets the guitar, he's 10 years old, if he can't learn how to play it, whatever. She said, but, but if he does learn how to play the guitar, he will be unique. He'll be the only right-handed, left-hand guitar player you know. And so this guitar represents a yes in my life. This guitar was a yes when I didn't really know the how. And to be honest with you, I didn't know if we were really setting our son up for a great experience of disappointment and failure and discouragement. But to the, we bought this guitar and I, we began sitting down and learning chords. And to this day, he is every bit the guitar player that I am. Actually, at this point, probably a better guitar player than me. And he is also the only right-handed, left-hand guitar player that I know. This is, yeah. Uh, this is a yes when there was no how in my life. Uh, some of the greatest miracles that you will see in your life may be getting held up by the fact that you've got a lot of how questions. <laughs> and you're not willing to set yourself apart, take a step of faith until there's a nice long list of hows that have been answered for you. But that's not really the way it works. And story after story after story, when God speaks, when he calls people to step out in faith, to set themselves apart for a holy purpose, they don't get the how. They just get the opportunity to say yes or no. And oftentimes asking how is just another version of saying no. So if we wait until we have the how before we say yes, oftentimes we miss it in our lives. If we wait until we have the how of how is a roof going to get fixed and how is the sound system going to get updated until we say yes to being set apart, to, be, to inviting our friends to come to Christmas services and hearing about the name of Jesus and celebrating the person of Jesus with us, we may never get around to inviting our friends and asking them to jump in and celebrate Jesus with us. If we endlessly ask the question of how in our lives before we say, yes, God, I will be set apart, I'll live the way you're calling me to live, when it comes to, I don't know, maybe it's the area of finances in your life, maybe it's the area of uh, substances, maybe it's the area of relationships, I don't know what it is. If we never say, yes, God, I will set myself apart and I'll allow you to do your work in my life and show me the how when you're ready. If we never do that, we may never get to experience the celebration that happens when the how finally comes. So the band's uh, going to come out, and we're going we're gonna to close this morning by uh, singing a couple more songs, a couple more Christmas songs. And uh, I'd love for you just to take a moment, maybe bow your heads with me right now. Let's do this. I just want to carve out just a moment here. <laughs> We started it with a minute of silence. Um, let's close it as well with a moment of just waiting before God. Um, maybe right now is a moment where you just need to take some inventory of your life and maybe just ask the question, 
God, where do you need me to be set apart? Maybe for some of you, you already know what that means. Maybe in this moment is a moment of just saying, yes. Yes, God. I'll be set apart. I'll live the way you've called me to live. I don't understand the how. I don't get it. But I'll let you set me apart. So, Lord Jesus, in this season of waiting, we just acknowledge that everything points to you. Um, that everything in our lives that, that we wrestle with, everything that, uh, that comes up, every event that happens, every need that presents itself is an invitation for us to come to you. And so, God, we come to you right now. Um, we recognize, God, that you've called us not to try to strive and, and struggle in our own strength, but to acknowledge you and to come to you first. So, God, in this place, we do that. Um, for some of us in this room, maybe, God, what, what you're calling us to in order to bring uh, what it is that you want into our lives, we need to set ourselves apart. So, God, I just pray for anyone in this room, even right now, who knows this is a season to set, your, to set themselves apart. And it's going to mean they're going to be different. Maybe they're going to be uh, uncomfortable. Maybe in some ways other people won't understand. But they are called, they're being called to be set apart by you. So God, uh, just let the yes reverberate across this room right now. God, we want to be people who follow after you. And God, we just pray in this season, in this midst, as we're waiting that you would bring Christ out of our lives. Would you bring Christ out of this church? Would you bring Christ to bear and to, and to be made glorious and to be made visible for everybody in our community to see, for everybody in our world to see? Would you do that, God? Would you do that in our lives? That's what we're desperate for, God. That's what we need more than we need anything else, God. That's what we need in our lives. So would you do it, God, as we wait on you, as we seek you? Just pray, God, that this Christmas season there would just be a, a sense of wonder and a sense of awe, just like we just read about, that would just fall over this whole community as we think about the person of Jesus, the one that it all points to from the cosmos and the creation from the beginning of time. And would you just speak to us in that time, God? In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.